evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Congress is moving quickly to pass new gun laws. The Senate has reached a deal on a framework and staffers on Capitol Hill are now working on the official text with the goal of passing it in the next few weeks. As I said, I will put this bill on the floor as soon as possible once the text of the final agreement is finalized. In the wake of shootings across the country, Ohio's governor quickly signed a bill that allows teachers to carry guns on school premises, and they only need 24 hours of training. Find out what teachers have to say about it. The 2020 election results are back in the spotlight. Today's January 6th hearing zeroing in on former President Trump's claims of widespread election fraud. How does Trump respond? And what does an attorney tell us about a related case she's still pursuing? An update on the 31 members of the nationalist group Patriot Front accused of trying to carry out a riot. They're no longer behind bars. We'll give you the latest. Disney and Pixar's upcoming film Lightyear will not be shown in the United Arab Emirates. The country is censoring the film because it has LGBT content. Congress is one step closer to passing new gun control laws. Today, staffers on Capitol Hill began crafting the text to finalize the framework of a deal that was reached over the weekend. Ten Republicans have bought in, which would be the bare minimum needed to pass the proposals. NTD's Melina Weiskup takes a look at the details. Just days after the House passed a package of bills on gun control, the Senate is on track to move their own proposals. Now comes the important work of turning this framework into legislation and legislative language that can pass Congress and be signed by the president. While the House version banned buyers under the age of 21, the Senate's version would still allow young buyers. But it would make it more difficult for a person under the age of 21 to get their hands on a gun. They'd first have to have their mental health and juvenile records checked. All 10 of these Republicans have signed on to the framework so far. It invests in so-called school safety measures and largely revolves around mental health investments. There's also funding for states to encourage them to enforce red flag laws, to strip guns from people who are deemed by a court to be a threat to themselves or others. Um, and encourage them to more thoroughly and um, broadly implement them. The proposal goes further to provide protections for domestic violence victims. As for criminals, the bill aims to crack down on people who illegally evade licensing requirements. And it will create more penalties for straw purchases, that is, gun purchases for others who cannot pass a background check themselves. While Democrats acknowledge that it doesn't do everything they call for, they say it's a way to get their foot in the door to do more later. They can stand up to the NRA. If they do it once, it's a muscle they can exercise again. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer today committed to a quick vote. As I said, I will put this bill on the floor as soon as possible once the text of the final agreement is finalized. It is a narrow path for congressional leadership to maneuver here, but with this latest commitment from these 10 Republican senators, it indicates that these newly proposed gun laws are on track to meet with success. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And in the state of Ohio, teachers and staff now only need 24 hours of training to carry a gun on school premises. 
A new law was passed earlier today after Governor Mike DeWine signed a Republican-backed bill that reduces the training from 700 hours to 24. DeWine said at a news briefing that those longer hours were intended to train law enforcement, adding that, quote, the vast majority of that training is not really relevant to school safety directly. The governor and lawmakers pushed the bill in response to recent shootings. But critics of the new law are concerned that the legislature moved too fast. The Ohio Education Association and the Ohio Federation of Teachers said in a joint statement that the new law will make Ohio students less safe. They say it's irresponsible to put guns in the hands of inexperienced people. And more on guns. The Supreme Court will soon rule on a case challenging a gun law in New York State. Gun owners and instructors in the state say they are hopeful that the high court will overturn the law. Here are the details. New York State currently requires people to show a proper cause for carrying concealed handguns before they receive permission from the state. A proper cause has to be an actual, rather than speculative, need for self-defense. And the permit doesn't apply to the entire state. The U.S. Supreme Court will soon decide whether to keep this law in place or overturn it. Those at the Nassau County Rifle and Pistol Range say the issue is a matter of common sense practicality. If you have a permit, right, you're permitted in, in Nassau County, right, why shouldn't your permit be good in the city, okay? Or Nassau County, New York permit, why isn't it good in New Jersey or California, all right? Your marriage license and your driver's license go all over the United States, but your permits are not universally accepted by other states, and they should be. A military veteran and former New York firefighter says restricting access to guns doesn't necessarily make a place safer. What I have noticed is places that have simpler legal gun laws are safer. Because, for instance, the recent shootings that we had, I feel if a place is unprotected by firearms, it's a soft target. That means anyone with malintent can go in there and expect no resistance whatsoever. Given the recent school shooting in Texas, he says teachers should be able to protect their students with guns. Firearms are not complicated devices. They're very simple. I personally feel you are the last line of defense with that room full of children. If you're there willing to educate them, you should be there willing to defend them with your life. The Supreme Court's ruling is due by the end of June. The case could yield the most important gun rights ruling in more than a decade, and it could impact various gun restrictions nationally. And in election-related news, the January 6th committee today puts the spotlight back on the 2020 election. Officials testifying say they have debunked Trump's allegations about fraud, but an attorney still fighting in a related case tells us another story. NTD's Iris Tao has more. In its second hearing, the January 6th committee on Monday tried to make the case that former President Donald Trump promoted what the panel called false voter fraud claims in the 2020 election. And in doing so, lit the fuse that led to the horrific violence of January 6th. The committee also played video testimony of former Attorney General Bill Barr, who said he told Trump that such claims were false. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. Also among those from Trump's inner circle testifying was B.J. Pack, a former U.S. attorney in Atlanta. 
He disputed allegations that a suitcase of ballots had been illegally added to the vote count. We interviewed, the FBI interviewed the individuals that are depicted in the, the videos. Uh, purportedly were double, triple counting of the ballots and determined that uh, nothing irregular happened in the counting. But Trump blasted the panel on Sunday, accusing it of, quote, not hearing from anyone saying the election was rigged and stolen, despite the evidence. Others are also speaking out. We spoke with Stephanie Lambert, the attorney in a pending case in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, in which several Republicans are alleging fraud in the 2020 election. There's so much more evidence. Uh, I'm very familiar with fraud. I, I know it when I see it. It exists. It happened, um, and I'm happy to move forward and litigate this case for my clients. Meanwhile, the next hearing is slated for Wednesday, in which panel members say they'll talk about Trump's broader planning for January 6. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The 31 members of the alleged nationalist group Patriot Front, who were arrested over the weekend, have since been released. Authorities arrested them in Idaho near a gay pride event based on suspicion that the group aimed to carry out riots. The all-male group was wearing matching gear and standing inside a truck when police stopped the vehicle and arrested them. In a video circulating on the internet, police can be seen lifting up the roller door of a U-Haul truck, revealing the men with their hands already raised in surrender. Of the 31, only one was from Idaho. Inside the truck, police found shields, shin guards, a smoke grenade and riot gear. The men were all wearing khaki pants with logos on their hats and arm patches. The logos identified them as members of the Patriot Front Group. The police chief for Coeur d'Alene told AP police came to know about the U-Haul truck after someone tipped them off. All 31 members were charged with misdemeanor and conspiracy to riot. Their bond was posted at $300 per person. They are free to leave Idaho and will appear in court at a later date. And Disney and Pixar Studios' new movie Lightyear will be in theaters this Friday, but not in the United Arab Emirates. The Middle Eastern nation has banned it from showing due to LGBT content in the movie. Here are the details. And beyond. The UAE's Media Regulatory Office announced Monday that the film Lightyear won't be shown in theaters because it violated the country's media content standards. Commander Hawthorne, you the executive director of the office told Reuters that they banned the movie because it includes homosexual characters. The film reportedly features the lead female character in a relationship with another woman and a kiss scene between the two. The UAE goes on to say that it evaluates all movies to, quote, ensure the safety of the circulated content according to the appropriate age classification. Movie theaters in the UAE had already started advertising showtimes for the movie before the ban. Disney has faced recent backlash for including sexualized and LGBT content in its products. A survey by the Trafalgar Group in April asked likely voters in the U.S. News reports reveal Disney is focusing on creating content to expose young children to sexual ideas. Does this make you more or less likely to do business with Disney? 68% said they are less likely to do business with Disney, including 57% who said they are much less likely to. Reporting by Allison Lee. NTD News. Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming is banning a woman from entering the park for five years. Authorities say she lied to them in their search for a missing hiker last year. The National Park Service says Heather McCoskey knowingly provided false information and a false report in the search for missing hiker Sian McLaughlin. 
in Grand Teton National Park last June. The woman reported that she saw McLaughlin on the day he disappeared and knew where he was headed. Officials say that subsequent investigation revealed McCoskey never saw anyone matching McLaughlin's description on that day. The relationship between McCoskey and McLaughlin is unclear. The National Park Service says the false report led to over 530 hours in wasted search efforts and investigations and that it cost the federal government over $17,000. Apart from the ban, officials have also ordered the woman to pay a $17,600 fine. McLaughlin is still missing and the park says it will continue to search for him this summer. And hopefully he's found without any more delay. Coming up, the California town, once notorious for its high gas prices, is now looking normal as the rest of California catches up. And Californians are abandoning the state in droves. Around 275,000 left last year alone. And a number of them are moving not to Florida or Texas, but to Mexico. That and more here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Inflation continues to be a top concern for Americans, with prices for nearly everything going up. Now an economist for financial services firm Allianz says most of it could have been avoided if the Federal Reserve had acted sooner. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Allianz chief economic advisor Mohamed El Arian told CBS's Face the Nation Sunday that the Fed mischaracterized inflation, and now it's fallen behind. This is going to have enormous economic, social, it hits the poor particularly hard, institutional and political consequences. And most of it could have been avoided had early actions been taken. He said once you fall behind with inflation, you have to make a choice. Either hit the brakes hard and risk recession or just tap on the brakes and risk inflation lasting much longer than it should. His comments come as Americans grapple with the worst inflation report in just over 40 years. The Consumer Price Index shows prices rose 8.6 percent year over year in May. Food prices are up 10 percent, gas is up nearly 50 percent, shelter is up 6 percent. Former Congressman David Bratt says inflation is here to stay for now. He's the current dean of the School of Business at Liberty University in Virginia. He told NTD's Capital Report on Friday the Fed's been printing way too much money. This dilutes the value of money already in circulation. And so just a couple months ago, the Fed was still printing 24% uh, uh, increases in money supply. Then it went down to 12. But it's not down to 12. It's still 12% increasing the money supply. And so uh, they should be increasing the money supply uh, by the amount of GDP growth you have, which is only about 2%. Economists describe inflation as too many dollars chasing too few goods. Meanwhile, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers predicts the U.S. will enter a recession in the next year. 
He told CNN's State of the Union Sunday that a combination of high inflation and low employment is almost always followed within two years by a recession. I think there's certainly a risk of recession in the next year. And I think given where we've gotten to, it's more likely than not that we'll have a recession within the next two years. Summer's statement was in response to a question about recent comments by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She told CNBC last week she didn't think the U.S. will have a recession. Thank you so much. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And staying with inflation, last year a small California town was featured for having the most expensive gas one could find. Now its prices are nothing special as almost everywhere else has caught up. NTD's Eileen Ang has the story. The small coastal town of Gorda, California, about halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles, made headlines last year when its gas prices hit $7.59 for a regular gallon of gas and $8.49 for premium. Now it's at $8.79 for regular and $9.79 for premium. An employee told Stanley Roberts, a veteran journalist on Sunday, that he used to get insults for the high prices. But now, he says, the complaints have all ended. People used to call me names, curse me out because of the price. But now that the rest of the country is caught up, nobody complains anymore. The average price in California currently is $6.43 per gallon. Nationally, it's $5.01. The Gorda gas prices may stick there for the moment, as gas station pumps are not able to surpass four digits and charge $10. The pumps would either need to be replaced or start charging in liters. It's not just the gas that's expensive. Customers are paying airport equivalent prices for food and drink, too. You brought a bunch of stuff there. Is it, what's it like? It's crazy in there. It's crazy. No, it's, it's all right. It's all right. You know, it's better than nothing. $4 know. for a bag of chips? It was, yeah, it was $11 for a water bottle and uh, carbonated. Last October, the general manager told us he has to spend $3,000 a day on diesel to run the generator, which runs the town. That makes everything else cost more, including gasoline. He said there's a gas station 12 miles south with similar prices and another station 40 miles north. And in other California news, a former CEO of Anaheim's Chamber of Commerce agreed to plead guilty to accusations of wire fraud. He signed the plea agreement on June 1st and will be required to pay back taxes for unreported income. NTD's Daniel Hall brings us the details. Todd Amend, former CEO and president of Anaheim's Chamber of Commerce, has agreed to plead guilty to a range of financial accusations. He allegedly committed tax fraud, money laundering, received illegal kickbacks, and defrauded COVID-19 pandemic relief funds for personal use. According to the filed criminal complaint, Amend and another unnamed political consultant laundered funds through the Chamber of Commerce to acquire a home in San Bernardino. Prosecutors state that Amend is also accused of receiving multiple kickbacks from the unnamed consultant. The funds were transferred from multiple banks to the Chamber's bank. In addition, Ament is accused of misusing COVID-19 small business relief loans. He used the money for personal property taxes and making multiple clothing and boating purchases. Ament signed the plea agreement on June 1st and is scheduled to be arraigned on June 21st. America's largest pork processor is closing a major plant in California. 
It says it'll keep servicing California's customers from existing facilities in the Midwest. Smithfield Foods is also reducing the size of its herd in Utah and exploring ways to exit its farms in Arizona and California. It blames everything on the rising cost of doing business in California. Smithfield says utilities are 3.5 times more expensive in California than in other states. The processor also brought up government regulation. A state law from 2018 made it illegal to breed pigs in small stalls because they want the pigs to have the freedom to move around. This would also increase the cost of production. And it's not just companies leaving California. Californians themselves are abandoning the state in droves. Around 275,000 people left last year alone. And a number of them are moving not to Florida or Texas, but to Mexico. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. California is continuing to shrink, with hundreds of thousands of residents moving to places like Tennessee, Texas, Florida, and Mexico. What California tells us when they come is that they are uh, not very happy with what, there's going, what is going on in their state. I don't know exactly what is going on there, but they are not very happy. Alfonso Barrera is a founding partner at Easy Legal Mexico, which provides immigration services. Barrera has seen the number of Americans moving to Mexico increase during the pandemic. Californian officials say around 275,000 people left the state last year. A lot of people are coming because they want to retire or they're looking to change their lifestyle in some way. Um, they're buying homes here and they're living here part-time or full-time. Matthew Harrop is the founder of Mexperience, an online resource for people who want to engage with Mexico. Harrop says... Possibly the most popular among Americans and Canadians is Ajijic, just south of Guadalajara, which is a, a very large conurbation of, of foreign expats um, around the lake there. But also popular is, is Baja California. Some Americans even live in Mexico, while at the same time they're working in California. They get paid in U.S. dollars, and then they get to pay for things in pesos. People like to retire when they're on fixed incomes and move to a country where the cost of living is a lot lower. They're their money stretches further. Kate Lincoln Goldfinch is an immigration attorney at Lincoln Goldfinch Law. She knows many Americans who moved there to take advantage of a lower cost of living. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And on the East Coast, one of the biggest food expos in the entire world is taking place right now in New York City. NTD's Phil Zoe takes us on a tour, trying out some of the fancy foods from across the globe. We're at the Fancy Food Show in New York City, an expo showing off some of the best specialty foods across the globe. Fancy food. See, it's very fancy stuff over here. We'll be baking all day long, so come back, okay? <laughs> Australia, Iceland, Italy, and of course the United States. Everybody's here. Specialty food is often made in smaller batches using high-quality ingredients, so it usually costs more and is considered a highly-valued food item. I really would love for you to try our cakes and cookies. Say no more. After sipping on some black and white coffee, Jonathan Noah of A to Z Distributors shows me one of his most popular desserts. This is knafe, uh -huh. but instead of the original knafe, it's, it's, a, it's a baklava with a knafe top. Across the aisle at Boston Gourmet Chefs, the baked pastries are smelling really good. That's because they use a European-style butter called plugra butter, which has a higher fat content. Butter does smell good when it's baking, yeah. It's, that's like one of the main things when you're baking like fresh croissants or things like that, yep. Vegan and vegetarian foods are taking over the globe. David Bencher of Ali Processing tells me. And everything is vegetarian. Some of these items are vegan. We have the grilled steak, we have the Salisbury steak, we have the breaded chicken patties. 
Ready chicken nuggets, quite a very, very big item of ours. Next up, drinks. How can you have fancy food without having some sparkling water? We just got into the spike business, so we're going to be going into more of a sparkling water made with real fruit, but adding um, a little bit of alcohol base. Now, who's ready for some snacks? Follow me. Wait. That's a pretty cool tagline. <laughs> we come up with a lot of fun names, and Tropic Like It's Hot is one of them. Alexandria tells me all about her so good freeze-dried fruit and vegetable snacks. So we are extremely innovative and dedicated to combating food waste. Over 40% of our fruits and veggies go to the landfill every year. So what do we do? We make shelf-stable products like our smoothies. You just blend with ice and water, and that's it. And last but not least, time for some fancy dessert. Our latest bar that we've released is our theater bar. So buttered popcorn, cola, raisins, a hazelnut praline, Whoa. strawberry ice cream, potato chips, okay. peanut butter, and then caramelized saltines. The show is making its first return to New York since the CCP virus pandemic. The organizers tell me fancy food is here to stay. Of course, inflation is affecting everyone, and that is across the board. Um, specialty food products tend to be a bit more expensive because of the quality of the production and the ingredients. So I do feel that the specialty food consumer is um, still going to be dedicated to buying those wonderful products. So what you saw earlier was just a fraction of what they offer here at the Fancy Food Show. They actually have nearly 2,000 specialty food companies here offering the latest food trends from baked goods to olive oil and what we saw earlier, flavored chocolate. That's right, butter popcorn and cola. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. And in Bitcoin news, the currency dropped 14% today, down to about $23,000. The total value of the cryptocurrency market tumbled below $1 trillion today. That's just about a third left from crypto's peak last November, when its total market value hit $3 trillion. The drop comes after a surprise move by major crypto lender Celsius. It led to a slide across crypto tokens, with Bitcoin hitting an 18-month low and number two token Ethereum down as much as 28%. Crypto markets have dived in the past few weeks. That as rising interest rates and inflation hurt riskier assets across financial markets. In May, the collapse of the Terra USD and Luna tokens also shook the industry. And something not quite as bad as losing all of your cryptocurrency, but close, would be not being able to withdraw your funds or make transfers. That's what happened to users of the Celsius crypto network. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. Celsius Network, a cryptocurrency lending company, is freezing all withdrawals and transfers between accounts. Celsius announced the news to customers on Sunday. Mark Fidelman, crypto expert and founder of SmartBlocks, said he would bail immediately if he were a Celsius customer. I would recognize that Celsius to them means Kelvin because uh, they're freezing everyone's assets. I mean, it's insane what's going on there. So if uh, you're a Celsius customer, I'd leave. The company said it froze people's assets because of extreme market conditions, but it didn't say what the extreme conditions were, possibly related to the price of Bitcoin dropping nearly 50% this year. Fidelman advises not to keep more than a couple thousand dollars in crypto exchanges. From what we've seen from um, Coinbase, is that even they're not guaranteeing that if they go into bankruptcy, your crypto is safe. So keep your crypto off the exchanges. Very simple. Celsius has its own token. Crypto lenders on its platform can earn interest on it, and borrowers can also pay interest in it. 
but its value has fallen about 97% in the last 12 months, from $7 to around 20 cents, based on CoinGecko data. It's the future, believe me. Don't, don't get turned off by this. This is a big correction that was needed. In efforts to comfort clients, Celsius says customers will continue to accrue rewards during the pause. Also, that has valuable assets and is working diligently to meet its obligations. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Game 5 of the NBA Finals tips off tonight in San Francisco. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the current leader for series MVP while highlighting the struggles of a fellow All-Star. Do Chinese-made vaccines cause cancer? A thousand Chinese citizens and their families say they suspect just that. And we spoke with some of them. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Game 5 of the NBA Finals is tonight. With the series tied at two games apiece, the stakes are pretty high. Golden State gutted out an impressive win in Game 4 to regain home court advantage. Steph Curry continues his march toward winning Finals MVP with 43 points the last time out. He's been the highest scorer in every game this series while hitting nearly half of his three-point attempts. On the opposite end, Draymond Green has struggled on offense. Normally a defensive stopper and all-around good player, Green has hit just 23% of his shots and missing all nine of his threes while accumulating more fouls than points. The Celtics, meanwhile, have been led by their young stars Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Both are averaging 22 points and 7 rebounds a game. Tatum also leads the team in assists, averaging nearly 8 a game. He and the Celtics will have their work cut out for them, though, as two of the three possible games left will be in San Francisco. And in tennis, the new ATP rankings are out, and former number one Novak Djokovic has fallen to third, while Daniel Medvedev reclaimed the top spot with Alexander Zverev right behind him. Medvedev was at number one earlier this year after Djokovic missed the Australian Open due to his vaccination status. This marks the first time since November 2003 that neither Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, or Roger Federer weren't ranked in the top two. The rankings are based on a player's best 18 tournament results over the previous 52-week period. Medvedev and Zverev both will miss Wimbledon. Zverev tore ligaments in his ankle at Roland Garros, while the All England Club has banned Medvedev as part of their boycott on all players from Russia and Belarus in response to the war in Ukraine. Rafael Nadal was ranked fourth after winning the French Open title for the 14th time in his career and beating Djokovic along the way. And though Nadal has won both slams this year, he's competed in just 10 events over the previous 52 weeks due to injuries. Fellow tennis great Roger Federer, who hasn't played since last summer's Wimbledon, has fallen to 68th. Federer's next scheduled tournament is September's Labor Cup in London. On the ice, the Stanley Cup Finals are set after Tampa Bay downed New York in Game 6 Saturday night, 2-1 to take the series. They'll meet Colorado in search of their third straight Stanley Cup title, something no team has done since the New York Islanders won four straight from 1980 through 1983. 
By the time Game 1 starts Wednesday, the Avalanche will have been off for 9 days. Colorado is hoping that'll be enough time for forwards Nazem Kadri and Andrew Cogliano to heal. Both had surgery for hand injuries sustained against Edmonton in the Western Conference Finals. Kadri has 14 points in 13 games this postseason. Tampa Bay, meanwhile, is hoping to have forward Braden Point available for Game 1. Point practiced Monday but hasn't played since Game 7 of their first round series against Toronto. Point led all postseason players with 14 goals each of the past two years. That's all for sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And in international news, controversial reports are brewing in China over alleged after-effects of getting doses of Chinese-made vaccines against COVID-19. At least 1,000 Chinese citizens were reportedly diagnosed with leukemia after getting the jab, while 600 children were found to have developed diabetes after the shots. We spoke with relatives of some of the victims for more details. My wife received the vaccine on April 8th and started to have symptoms on April 9th. She was diagnosed with acute B-lymphoblastic leukemia. A month and a half later, Ms. Zhang passed away, leaving behind her husband and two young children. Her husband said she was in good health before getting a Chinese-made vaccine. In northern China's Hebei province, Ms. Yin is fighting the same disease. She received her second dose of the Sinopharm vaccine on May 1st of last year. Later, she was diagnosed with acute B lymphoblastic leukemia. My wife felt breathlessness after the vaccine shots. Then she started to cough. We didn't take it seriously in the beginning and treated it as a cold, but it wasn't getting any better, and she started to have back pain. We then had her checked out and found out it was a blood issue. Her platelet count was only a little over 30. The doctor said it looked like an acute disease. Miss Yin was also said to be healthy before getting vaccinated and has no family history of leukemia. The two women are far from alone in their misfortune. Recently, patients from across China co-signed a public letter accusing Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines of causing leukemia. The document said more than a thousand patients were impacted and that such a large number of similar reports can't be written off as coincidence. The letter explains most of the patients started to show symptoms a few days after getting the vaccine, and the oldest among them is over 70, while the youngest is just three years old. Virtually all of the patients also got the same appraisal from their local disease control centers, that their symptoms had nothing to do with the vaccines. The letter became one of the most searched topics on Chinese social media platforms, but was later wiped from the website. They said it was purely coincidence that the vaccine shot was taken around the time when the disease started. That's their appraisal. They meant that you'd have the disease with or without the vaccine shots. They made the vaccine sound innocent. But it's more than cancer. Another letter was posted online in late May. It called attention to cases of type 1 diabetes that developed in children after they got vaccinated. The letter was written by parents of over 600 affected children across the country. Most of the sick children were injected with the Sinovac vaccine between October 2021 and May 2022. Like the leukemia patients, local authorities also told their parents that it had nothing to do with vaccines. While patients' families seek out help and justice, Chinese authorities may be scrambling to silence them. Some report being threatened by police, having their online posts removed by web censors, and having their social media group chats shut down.
I know the path to seek justice will be tough, but I will continue the journey because I lost my wife. It's not a matter of money. The patients and their families say media outlets inside China have largely refused to report on the issue, while attorneys opted not to represent them. They believe that's out of fear of suppression or retaliation from the communist regime. A concerning report. Now, imagine this. You work in a foreign country, and your boss tells you you have to swear allegiance to their government or else you'll be fired. What would you do? Well, a not-too-different scenario is facing many English teachers in Hong Kong. NTD's Don Ma has the details. Hong Kong officials are ordering foreign English-language teachers working in government schools to sign a declaration swearing allegiance to the city. China expert David Zhang and host of Epoch TV's China Insider says having foreign teachers swear allegiance is to keep them in line with Chinese laws. They want to prevent foreigners who are not bound or have not traditionally been bound by uh, these Chinese measures to say things or educate uh, children on the issues that would be deemed politically sensitive in China. They're trying to prevent anybody that wants to talk out of line, so to speak. For anyone who doesn't sign the declaration, Hong Kong's Education Bureau will take action to terminate their employment. Zhang says forcing teachers to swear allegiance has an impact on what students will be able to learn in Hong Kong. Freedom of speech in education or what they teach in education in Hong Kong is going to be totally controlled. So June 4th is a prime example of this. It's very politically sensitive in China. Now that you swore allegiance to Hong Kong, you're gonna not going to talk about this in your lessons or your lectures. Following the passing of the Hong Kong National Security Law, authorities gradually started ordering government employees to take an oath. Those who take it swear to uphold Hong Kong's constitution, bear allegiance to Hong Kong, and be responsible to the Hong Kong government. It really just means allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party after China took over Hong Kong with the national security law. So you're really not swearing allegiance to Hong Kong, but you're actually swearing allegiance to the government behind Hong Kong, which is the Chinese Communist Party. The requirement of foreign English language teachers to swear allegiance applies to those whose contract started after July 1, 2020, which is the first day that the Hong Kong national security law was put in place. Don Ma, NTD News. The United Nations human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, indicated today that she would not seek a second term. She made the surprise announcement during a speech to the Geneva-based Human Rights Council. I will not be seeking a second term huh? uh, after my mandate expires on the 31st of August of, of this year. Bachelet made a trip to China last month, for which she was criticized by rights groups as well as some Western governments, including the U.S., Critics said the conditions imposed by the Chinese authorities on the visit did not enable a complete and independent assessment of the rights environment. Bachelet denied that the criticism had anything to do with her decision, saying that she had made up her mind even before going to China. She said she was motivated by the fact that she wanted to be closer to her family and her home country, Chile. And over in Ukraine, the bodies of 220 Fighters from the Azovstal steelworks have been returned after ex an exchange with Russia. That's according to a former Ukraine National Guard commander who said just as many bodies remain. Here are the details. The bodies of more than 200 Ukrainian fighters are still yet to be retrieved from the Azovstal steelworks in Mariupol. 
That's according to the former commander of Ukraine's Azov National Guard Regiment in footage he posted on his Telegram channel on Sunday, weeks after Russia claimed full control of the southern port city. Maxim Zhorin said that under the terms of a recent exchange, 220 bodies of those killed in Azovstal had been sent to Kyiv. Just as many bodies still remain in Mariupol, and now processes, negotiations are going on about further exchange and returning them home. Absolutely all the bodies must be returned home and we will work on this. Hundreds of fighters holed up in the steelworks were taken into Russian custody in mid-May. However, many were also killed during Russian attacks on the plant and the city. And now the very difficult work begins, very difficult processes regarding the identification of the bodies. The fact is that most of these bodies are in a very bad condition, and it is impossible to identify them visually, for example. DNA testing in servicemen's uniforms and insignia would be used to help with the identification, Zorin said. Mariupol has been reduced to a wasteland after months of siege and bombardment that Ukraine says has killed tens of thousands of people. Coming up, a popular parade in Oregon resumed after a two-year pandemic break and a California-based marching band traveled to Portland to participate. And a photographer dedicates himself to capturing waves of the Pacific Ocean. He's taken photographs from inside some of the world's most dangerous and inaccessible waves. Community events are back after the pandemic, and people are going to great lengths to be involved again. A San Francisco Bay Area-based marching band participated in the Grand Floral Parade in Portland, Oregon, over the weekend. We followed them on their journey to hear why they made the long trip. One by one, they loaded the bus with their equipment and instruments. The Tianguo marching band members made the 600-mile trip from San Francisco to Portland for the annual Grand Floral Parade. Yeah, this is one of the larger parades in the West Coast, and so we wanted to come back this year, and they warmly welcomed us. The Grand Floral Parade resumed after getting canceled two years in a row due to pandemic lockdowns. The Tianguo Marching Band, translated to Divine Land Marching Band in English, formed in 2007. The San Francisco-based group has participated in many parades, both inside and outside California. This time, some of the members are from New York and Vancouver. There were over 100 members participating in total. The Tianguo Marching Band members all share the practice of Falun Dafa. Uh, Falun Dafa is a practice that's based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. And our mission in the band is to share the beauty of Falun Dafa with the community through our music. And the community really felt that beauty. Oh, I loved it. It was so beautiful. Lovely. Yes, just about my right. favorite. You're just wonderful. The prettiest band in the whole parade. I love you guys. Amazing. Amazing. Their shoes all matched. Every detail was very impressive. Yeah. It was beautiful. I videoed the whole thing. The Falun Dafa band was really wonderful. And I practice meditation every single day. Not Falun Dafa, but I believe in everyone's right to practice what they believe. It's absolutely necessary that people have the freedom to practice their meditation, 
to work according to their ethical goals. I just can't believe that they would be suppressed. Under the Chinese Communist Party, Falun Dafa practitioners are persecuted for their beliefs. But overseas, they want the world to know it's a peaceful meditation group. It made me so happy that they chose to play an American song when they were here to visit us. We thank them for that. That was a great consideration. Thank you. The band includes American classics in its repertoire, like Stars and Stripes Forever. According to their website, the mission of the Tianguo Marching Band is to present and promote the beauty of Falun Dafa. And over in Hawaii, a photographer is known for his stunning images of ocean waves. They're taken from inside the barrels of some of the most powerful and dangerous waves on Earth. Let's take a look. My name is Clark Little, and I am a wave photographer from the North Shore of Oahu. When he was younger, Clark Little would surf the shore break waves, something very few people dare to do because of the inevitable impact with the sand. And he was doing it on some of the most treacherous waves in the world. Now he leaves his board at home and brings his waterproof camera. Shore break is so beautiful and scary at the same time. Um, like I said, I used to surf the shore break, so I'm kind of, it's my comfort zone. I, I like sand bottom. Uh, I think it has more aqua, beautiful colors. Little just released a new book that chronicles his last 15 years of capturing the beauty of waves. Called The Art of Waves, the book has more than 150 of his favorite images. The book came out about a month ago, and gosh, it's awesome. I'm so stoked on the whole, um, just how it turned out and, and, you know, getting all the support. That support includes testimonials from top athletes who surf these same waves. Kelly Slater, one of the most decorated athletes in professional surfing, got to know Little decades ago. He wrote the foreword to the new book. Clark's so connected with what he's looking at. It seems so natural to him. Uh, it just struck him one day to start capturing it. Big wave surfer Laird Hamilton says Little's photography gives him the chance to examine the ocean in a way that's impossible when surfing the chaotic and big seas that he likes to be in. Well, I, I mean, if when I look at Clark's books and I and I, I mean, I see the the beauty of the ocean, you know, and 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 uh, and the complexity. His books capture the things about the ocean that make us believe in, you know, higher powers. While Little usually shoots in Oahu, his new book also includes photos from the other Hawaiian islands, California, French Polynesia, Tonga, and the Galapagos Islands. In France, a museum of the Middle Ages has reopened after restoration. It features many masterpieces and also some mysteries. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. Before fantasy books or films, it was said that unicorns existed in ancient times, and the magical animal was thought to have a fascinating power to people of the Middle Ages. The unicorn appears here in one of the best masterpieces inherited from medieval times, a series of six tapestries named The Lady and the Unicorn. This tapestry was sewn around 1500. This is called a millefleur or thousand flower tapestry. It presents cut flowers on a red background. The lady stands between a lion and a unicorn bearing the family coat of arms. In this scene, the unicorn stands for purity and beauty. 
and reflects the virtues of the lady. The unicorn appears for the first time in medieval iconography. The ancient text mentions buffaloes or animals with only one horn. According to the text, its horn had purifying virtues. It could purify water or protect from poison. After 11 years of construction work, the restored Cluny Museum reopened to the public. This is the only national museum on medieval times in France, and it showcases masterpieces of a period of time spanning over a thousand years. The Lady and the Unicorn depicts a specific story of a lady discovering the five senses, one in each tapestry, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell, with the help of a unicorn. But what is the sixth sense all about? This is a mystery of its own. The tapestry has something written on it. My only desire. Maybe the lady is taking jewels from a chest, or maybe she put the jewels inside it. If she takes those, maybe this is for a celebration, perhaps a wedding. If she gave away the jewels, this is a sign of renouncement. Maybe then this is the renouncement of earthly wealth to get closer to God. Like the lady and the unicorn, many objects of art and craftsmanship found in the museum relate to a spiritual research. These altarpieces used to be displayed in churches on special occasions. The altarpiece represents various scenes based on the Eucharist, based on the Last Supper. Including the Last Supper of Christ, a whole set of sculpted statuettes assembled in altarpiece cases which are themselves sculptured and decorated with motifs. At the end of the Middle Ages, Belgium and Netherlands were very rich regions, which devoted their wealth to creating works of art for the religious or for churches. In France, the medieval times were compared to the Dark Ages during the 18th century by philosophers and revolutionaries. According to historian Jacques Le Goff, this was a misconception. The Middle Ages wasn't a dark period, on the contrary, it emphasized the use of understanding and reason, and its arts features important parts of light and beauty, creativity, and it shaped foundations for the future. The Middle Ages ended with Gothic art, which would allow men to build immense cathedrals. This was a time when monks and religious orders formed part of the elite in society. French kings such as Saint Louis were the keepers of religion, and were seen as God's ambassador. The Middle Ages still retains many mysteries for today's historian, but the museum allows us to witness the beauty of this period. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Some gorgeous pieces there. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.